2: Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a podcast with the opinion that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host Hannah Shah and I'm joined today by Ali McGovern and Steph Lloyd, fresh from France, they're world record holders now, to discuss the world of politics this week. And stay tuned for later from the show when we will be hearing from our roving reporter, Stefan Rolnick. Hello. Hello, hello. I did it mainly for the Alliteration. You're definitely a co-host, <laughs> and much more than a roving reporter. Roving to reporter
3: me. Rolnick, I think. Works
2: for me. <laughs> um, where you're interviewing fantastic MP, Stephen Doughty, aren't you?
3: Yes, Stephen Doughty, the member of parliament for Cardiff South and Panath, a place very close to my heart, of course. As Obviously. I say, all too often on this podcast, as. A citizen of Cardiff myself. It's a really good conversation and I promise we keep the Cardiff chat to a minimum. But for the record, he does think Cardiff are going to get promoted back to the Premier League next season, which is good. But we talk about how he got into politics, what inspired him to run for parliament. We talk about Brexit, Tory leadership stuff. We talk about big tech you know there's a lot in there so all the stay big tuned. things it's cardiff being the most
2: important of all of them Ovs.
3: cardiff is always the most important. okay
2: fantastic so stay tuned for that uh, before that we'll be talking to ali and steph about their little sojourn in france um how we stop the use of food banks in this country and also about chris williamson so stay tuned for all that let's get going So. Ali, Stephanie, great to see you back from sunny France. Ali is here recording in her England flag.
4: Alay, ale, alay. We had a great time. We I did. I
2: understand you've been busy breaking world records this weekend. I've seen a
4: very lovely medal. Literally, Steph and I are now world record breakers, which is very exciting. I never, ever, ever thought that this is something that I would do. Definitely not. I mean, all the things... I might become a world record breaker at, I don't know, like... Uh, I can't even think; it's so not my thing. But the idea that we would we would do anything sporting is yeah. like a bit crackers. Yeah, but it was fantastic. To wasn't be fair,
5: it? I I do already have a, a Guinness World Record. No do way. You? That What's is it? a thing. But it's not quite as impressive as the one that we did at the weekend. So the one I previously have is the most amount of Smurfs, like people dressed up as Smurfs. Yeah in one place at one time, which is the kind of thing that university life can give you yes. when you it's go amazing. to Swansea. Yeah. Um, so that was over 10 years ago. But this one this weekend was pretty special, to say the least. We so, were out in France playing the biggest women's football match ever. Biggest football match of Just, any gender. Oh, of any gender. Any gender.
2: Oh, gender. gender. Yeah. Yeah, let you there. So you're telling me, Steph, that you're a double world record holder now. Just putting it out there. Just putting yeah. it out there. That is and true. And, and the what what presence of a geni- genius. I can't oh, cope.
4: Unquestionably. Without what was really amazing, actually, was so we were at um, the training ground of Olympic Lyonnais, um, which I know uh, Steph just had a lot, had a moment there. But it was so
5: <laughs> cool. That is for anyone that doesn't realize why I had a moment there. That is where the best, I would say, the best foot, women's footballer in the world currently, Lucy well, Bronze.
4: Philip Neville said she was the best Indeed. women's footballer in the world. Uh, so. that, is, that is where Can't Lucy Bronze wrong. plays football.
2: Ah, I see. Every day, and she's so. quite
4: beautiful, isn't she, Steph? Ah, that's nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah. nothing to do with it but so olympic lyonnais is the home of women's football they're one of the teams that have invested the most mm-hmm. in women's professional football and so steph and i were out there breaking the world record for uh biggest continuous game of football i think the score in the end was something like 346 still going it's still going it's still going it's Still going. Um, 323 blues I scored um, two of those. So. Yeah, Steph got two goals, which I was very, very pleased uh, about, especially because we were on the same team. Yes, <laughs> um, If she'd been on the opposite <laughs> side, we were obviously the red team. Yeah, Um If she'd Absolutely. been on the blues, I wouldn't have been so happy. But um, we had a great time. And as well as actually playing in the game in 36 degree heat, which was... Horrendous, Which was really horrendous. But they were
5: squirting water pistols from us from the sidelines, which fun. was really nice. That's and we nice got idea. lots of ice creams afterwards. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I went and sat in a, basically a giant freezer afterwards because I was so hot. It was ridiculous. What's this
2: giant freezer?
5: It was just one of the rooms they had. They basically had a little area that was really air conditioned. And yeah. Every time you came off the pitch, you could go in there. And it was where they had their office. And it was basically in this giant freezer. So they like put me in there because I'd like overheated. Oh, that sounds Cause, nice. Because despite everyone telling me not to, I just kept
4: running. Yeah. <laughs> and it felt a little, it was so hot. And the thing is, right, everyone was like, let's just, let's just do, let's just walk around. Let's just pass the ball around Mm. a bit. Nobody like, nobody do that much, which was fine for like the first 10 seconds. And then someone would get the ball and see that the game was really static and just make a run. And then your football brain just like kicks in and everybody just like. Starts moving, yeah. And then you realise the heat and mm. then you feel like you're about to have a heart attack or something. So True. anyway.
5: I had to, I, my my uh, AstroTurf football boots saw the end of their days. They'd lasted me for 10 years, but it was so hot. The soles melted off of the bottom of them. The, so, the Astro
4: wow. was like, was boiling hot. Yeah. You couldn't like stand on the Astro without boots or shoes or flip-flops or something because it was so hot. Mm. And I mean that, but all of this like... um uh, proud of ourselves that we do feel probably wasn't the best bit for me the best bit was actually just talking to all the uh, the women and men who'd come along yeah the all people, over the world all over the world there was people from all over the United States all over Europe Saudi every, Arabia um, Qatar mm. Jordan there was like so there was like a real combination of people from the US Europe Middle East um, people from Africa like there was there was quite the um, combination of people and it's a cliche to say that football is a universal language, but it was really easy to talk about women's football in that context because we've yeah. all got the same issues, which is the sort of historic uh, banning of women in the game means that there's now a, um, a movement everywhere to restore women's right to play football properly. Um, I took a picture of one of the referees who was from Jordan who had on her, her referee shirt, can we please play football now? <laughs> And um, so everybody there was not necessarily a politician, but they were all doing mm. something deeply political. And even just by kicking a ball around it was great but it was
5: great I mean I got to sit in the crowd and watch Alison do a kind of Q&A because um, it was amazing it, like there was the football game that was going on but there was so much else that was going on as well it was like a little festival and it was there was skills training there was training for referees there was they did a Q&A so obviously we went over with the women's parliamentary team I had a fun time of telling everybody for the entire day that I was like I'm not actually an MP I'm just, <laughs> just just hanging on so we kind of the rest of us that weren't MPs kind of sat and watched as um there was Alison, tracy crouch stephanie peacock uh lou hague Gillian keegan uh, keegan rosanna allen can like it was it was such a good group of people who'd gone out there and there was kind of people from all across the world as we say kind of asking them questions on on how they did and and to be honest just watching their kind of faces and their reactions of seeing a group of women politicians who really wanted to to make a real difference across party and and really come out and talk about how important sport really is.
4: It was very it was more really in common other. actually. It
5: really was. And because actually, I mean they got swamped afterwards with everyone wanting to take selfies with
4: them, which you know is a nice step change for, yeah, for parliamentarians is, like, these days. Like of the of the, <laughs> the MPs who played to Tory and for Labour, mm. like um all from different parts of the country. Yeah. Obviously like some Labour, some Tory, but you know, take different positions on Brexit um all kinds of things but like that's all irrelevant because we're just there to play football with each other Mm. and demonstrate that actually like in life you need stuff that brings you together you know it can't all be about division Mm.
2: that's a nice message i think my next question was and you've sort of covered this already was obviously we've got the lionesses everyone's picking up the spirit come Um, on on. they're playing is it right the semi-final against the usa tomorrow or yeah Yeah. today in podland Today in Podland, in Podland. Today it's today. today. In Podland. Yes. So, so it's eight o'clock tonight. This evening. Don't miss out. Get
4: excited.
2: Um and obviously we've seen women's football sort of take front and centre stage more than I think we've ever mm. done previously, yeah. certainly in my lifetime. Um, what can we do to actually capitalise on this in a meaningful way like how can we get girls playing football well, I
5: think the kind of uh, the one thing I was going to say first is that like a uh, well done to BBC Sport so they have actually placed this front and centre of what they've done and, and put a huge amount into it and it's one of those things where if you give people the opportunity to watch it for free and put it on BBC and you promote it in a way that they have done. People are watching it and we're seeing literally every match we're breaking records mm. constantly with the viewing figures. I think it was like 7.6 was the last Correct. game. Correct. Um, and I think it will be even More bigger. More people
4: than watch Glastonbury at the weekend. Yeah.
5: Wow. And I think, you know, that's how that's how big it's getting. And I think it is because they have actively made the decision to really promote it as much as possible. But
4: also, it's just good. Mm. I mean, the US are a really good team. And oh, yeah. you know, Hannah, how I always like to turn this podcast secretly into like a football so not we've so just, secretly. We've just, <laughs> we've just we've not just unashamedly so so done secretly. it today. But the US are a really, really good side. They're, yeah. they're the side. I
2: currently have them in the
4: Progress Sweepstakes. No so, way. Yeah. Yeah, France okay. went out. I was quite sad. So basically, like your win-win tonight. Yeah, that that's the no, hope.
5: No, you Sorry. won lose-lose. I'll just give you the money if we
2: win. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna hold you to that. You can <laughs>
5: Um, but, but I mean, the reason why they're so big, like why they're so good as well, though, is because of the funding situation. Mm. So there was the the law changes a couple of years ago that meant that they have to invest, particularly in colleges, which is where sport is so big in America. They have to invest the same amount of money in women's sports as they do oh, in men's. Wow. and yeah, And it made a huge difference.
4: and one of the questions that um we as as women in politics in the u k. got asked mm. quite a lot, the weekend was do you think that the uk will do that in the same way and we don't have the ability to bring class actions in in Mm. a similar way but um you know i think the equality and human rights commission could play a role here Mm. baroness sue campbell who's the head of women's football at the FA, she is a total legend (laughs) she (laughs) is amazing she ran the youth sport trust and was very involved in the way that the Olympics um, helped like young people in the UK when we had London 2012. And now she's totally transforming women's football. But like, I just know that it's, it's a constant battle. It's a constant battle to say, actually, uh, women's football should get the same resources. So I think all of us came, in, came away with that as a bit of a challenge. Like, how do we in politics make this work for women? How do we make sure that we do get a quality of funding? okay fantastic
2: um so moving on to something slightly less cheery um but good for you Alison we've got the summer holidays upon us and I know that you launched an exciting new campaign last week um called making ends meet and it's about food poverty um can you tell us a bit more about it and why it's even more important sort of
4: now now we're coming into school holiday territory okay so thank you Hannah yeah it's it's in many ways, it's much less exciting, uh, much less um, exciting in a way that will make people uh, feel good about the country. Unfortunately, it's something that will make people feel that our country's really gone wrong. In that one of the um, things that gets raised with me most as a member of parliament is food banks. Um, I think most of my constituents are quite keen to help out if they if they can to help restock food banks. But actually, they do also think it's Victorian, the way that our welfare state has gone. The idea that that if you end up um, in the UK with just not enough money to live on, that our system now basically points you towards a food bank rather than, you know, the system itself being able to make sure that you have enough to get by. Um, I think most people do think is, is a massive backward step. So Friend of this parish, uh, former Prime Minister Gordon Brown and I have launched a project called Making Ends Meet, um, which is about getting underneath this food bank phenomena and also things like holiday hunger. So over the summer holidays, um, we will see um, many thousands of children be fed at um, holiday hunger projects. So when kids aren't getting the free school meals in school, where do they get a guaranteed healthy meal from? Often it's like a charitable project. And what we're trying to do is to get underneath that, not to say, do we need to get more um, supermarkets recycling their leftovers? No, actually, because food poverty is not really a special thing. It's not like a particular thing. It's just ordinary poverty. Mm -hmm. And in a country where the national minimum wage is going to be one of the legal uh, minimums that's the highest in the world um, in just a couple of years, and the Tories go on and on and on about how Higher employment rate is now, more people in work than ever before. How can it be that the labour market is failing so conclusively to give people enough money to live on? And the answer to that is really the what's happened to the welfare state Mm. and the way that it's been degraded over the past few years. So over the summer, along with um others, Kate Green, Emma Lewell Book, Leslie Laird, and other, other members of parliament. Um, Gordon and I are going to be um, researching and coming up with a paper on not just how to end food banks um, you know momentarily but how to really kind of get underneath this problem in the welfare state so that we know that we can really fix it on a permanent basis and we can slowly but surely get rid of food banks and make sure that we never get in this position again as a country.
2: Amazing. Thanks, Ali. Um, we'll be keeping you updated over the summer because I understand you've got a few events around the country.
4: We have. Um, and if anyone wants to get involved or has got ideas about what needs to change about the welfare state, give me a shout. Give
2: Ali a shout. And if you all learn a little bit more about food poverty and holiday hunger, um, I'll drop a link to episode 54 when we spoke to the Trussell Trust, who are a national food bank charity and I think one of the partners in your project. They are. They are. Fantastic. They're an amazing group of people. Okay and very finally the last thing i want to talk to you about today um we saw i think we're sort of going downwards we started off really exciting we're going slowly more depressing it's all right. we'll talk about uh, england
5: again at the end yeah. <laughs> to
2: cheer us all up uh we saw the lifting of the suspension of the derby north mp chris williamson um a decision that's now been referred back to the labor party nec so they're sort of the labor party's ruling council as it were um Now, the specific internal politics of it aside, because obviously we're in Ali's office, a.k.a. the very lovely podcast bunker. Um, (laughs) Is there such
4: a thing as a lovely bunker? I'm not sure.
2: I think so. It's nicer than the one we do it in on a Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's important to talk less about the internal politics because it's all obviously changing, and more important that we talk about why it's so important that we have an independent disciplinary process and that this all happens in a really clear and transparent way. Because obviously what's happened isn't right um, and it needs to change. What do you think, Steph?
5: No, totally. And I think for those that don't kind of follow the nuances of some of this, the reason why I think this really highlights the need for that independent investigation is because of that, kind of meddling that you see with the internal politics of any party and yeah if you're truly going to be a party where you have the kind of values and and kind of core needs of anti-racism at the heart of it there's got to be a way that you can put complaints in and those be based on facts and the situation rather than who your political allies are so we saw the disciplinary panel basically the way that it works if someone makes a complaint to the Labour Party it goes to the compliance unit. They then refer that on if they feel it's necessary uh, and if it meets certain thresholds onto what they call the kind of disputes committee. So it's a group of people made up who are elected onto the NEC um, and they sit on those specific panels. They've normally only got about three people on them, Mm. which was the case at this point. Um, And they then make the decision whether or not they're going to refer that on to the National Constitutional Committee, which is kind of the biggest Uh, The most kind of senior body when it comes to discipline um, or if they're just going to kind of give someone a slap on the wrist or or let them back in. And that was what happened in the case of Chris Williamson. So, you know, there were lots of stories that floated about, about why he was let back in and where those decisions came from and who it was that made those decisions. But the biggest problem, I think, with that, as you say, is it's not that you know, we can go around in circles on those and, and who said and who did the right thing and who said the wrong thing. The fact is, it is wrong that we can even have that conversation in the mm. first place, because that's why there is the need for this independence in this system to know that both, you know, the victims can can come forward with those issues. And it's not going to be based on, well, can I make a complaint about this someone, like with this person, because actually they're best friends with this person, and this will affect me politically. And, you know, politics is a, is a is a nasty game at points. And, it's a it's a heavily political environment. That's the point of it. So that's why having that kind of independent process is really necessary. It was a, another very dark day for the Labour Party. I think again when when Chris was let back in, but they're now going to refer that
4: back to the National Executive Committee. So we'll see where we go from there. And it's not just. I mean, it should say that um, how cases of anti semitism is are being dealt with um, is a very important mm. a way in which we're seeing seeing the failing of a politically driven system. Mm. Um, but it's not just anti-Semitism. Nope. Correct. Yeah. This also has, you know, massive um, effect on the way that we deal with sexual harassment yeah. and homophobia, transphobia, and because, all of these things. Yeah. Because if you feel like you have to go in front of essentially a political committee, as Steph says, you're going to wonder about the political motivations of the, that group of people. Mm. Um, and there's got to be a level of independence. And you know, I think it's the Lib Dems went through all of this Mm. and we should have, we should have known at that point that it was, if if the current system was ever the right one, it isn't now. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I think we should uh, leave
5: that there. Mm. Now, well, was it the only other thing I was going to say is that obviously we launched a campaign last we week for that which was uh, called Kick Out Chris which was all about those that kind of issue um, and literally over a th- thousands of people have written to yeah, I think uh, Jenny Forby yeah. and the party to say they want they wanted them to look again so well done to everybody that did that because that and clearly that has had that, the desired that works. effect that yeah. works yeah. so um, if you've not done that action yet though do sign up to the campaign yeah. because it's- this Kick is going to kickoutchris.com
2: very easy to remember
5: very easy and this is going to have lots of twists and turns and as Ali says it's got much wider implications in the kind of you know broader independence of of the complaint system that we're all campaigning for so do sign up to that uh, and make sure uh, that you
2: uh, get some info fantastic we're now going to take a short break uh but when we're back we'll be joined by stefan who's interviewing stephen dow tmp in the meantime please take a moment to send this to a progressive pal it's much appreciated and don't forget to watch england play the us tonight Uh, We'll all be cheering them on, won't we? Linus's, come on! Come on, on, England. See you later.
4: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com
1: Get up to 60% off during Borough's Memorial Day sale at borough.com slash ACAST. That's borough.com slash ACAST. borough.com slash ACAST.
3: So I'm joined here today by Stephen Doughty, Member of Parliament for Cardiff South and Panath in your lovely office here. How are you doing? First I'm, of all, I'm
0: fine. I'm fine. Enjoying the good weather. I was just going to
3: say, Panath Pier must be looking very nice this time of it year. It is,
0: and the bay as well. Um, it was pretty gorgeous <laughs> at the weekend, and had a chance to go down to the Vale as well and have a nice walk along the along the coast, which was great. So
3: you're making me miss it now. Um, <laughs> I wanted to start off with two very hard hitting questions. Are Wales going to win the Rugby World Cup and a Cardiff going to get promoted back to the Premier
0: League next season? <laughs> uh, yes and yes. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> in, in terms of the latter, I mean, I mean, actually, like nobody was really expecting Cardiff to get promoted the season before last. So, um, in some ways, last year was a bit of a bonus, and they hadn't put in the effort and the the work that I think would be required to stay up. So, um, I'm I'm hoping that this time around um, we get in, but it'll be nice to see us winning again, hopefully yeah. in the Championship. So. Um,
3: I mean, I promise my colleagues I wouldn't do too much Cardiff chat (laughs) (laughs) at the top of the show, but I would like to say, I feel like Neil Warnock, despite his Brexit views, did not get enough credit for what he did with that team last season, but we will... uh... I
0: I would say, yeah, I agree, but um, he definitely should stay off the OAs when it comes to Brexit, so... (laughs) We'll move on from that one. So... You grew up in Cardiff? Yeah, born and brought up in Cardiff in the Vale. Um, uh, I was uh, in North Cardiff till I was about sort of five and then was out in the Vale of Glamorgan at, at a local school there. And um, my nan lived in Padarth. Um, I lived in various points in Grangetown, Adamsdown, Splot, so all around my patch. So yeah, it's home.
3: Is it nice to be representing you know the area you grew up?
0: Yeah, no, it's fantastic. I mean, and particularly because it's changed so much since I was a kid. I mean, you'll remember, you know, what Cardiff Bay used to be like and how, how dramatically it's changed. And, you know, it really was sort of, uh, certainly in the mid 80s, you know, pretty uh, run down. And, and then obviously you have the Bay development in particular, which has just transformed the area. And obviously my predecessor, Alan Michael and others were very involved with that. And, and today, you know, we see, you know, complete change.
3: Yeah, it feels like Cardiff's really coming into its own now. Every time you go back, there's something new there and leading the way on things like transport and cycle lanes and stuff like that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, you know, I always say, you know, we've gone from being a place of, you know, uh, the the, the sort of the the heavy industry of the docks before Mm -hmm. to now, you know, BBC Roadblock Studios making Doctor Who and Casualty and all sorts of amazing programmes. And, um, you know, uh, actually one of the, I can't say because it's a bit secret, one of the big new TV productions of the next couple of years has just been being recently filmed um, in Bad Wolf Studios in Cardiff Bay. And so you know it's a real transition of yeah. of industries of the past to the present.
3: Yeah, and big shout out to the Doctor Who Museum down there in uh, yeah. Although <laughs> it's
0: closed down recently, they're supposed to be opening a new one. But um, but one of the perks of the job is that I have actually got to go inside the real Tardis. So um, no. yeah, and I didn't even know I was going to go in. They I, I was in the studios going around, and then they said, "Oh, come through this door here." And then you suddenly saw the police door, and then uh, I was inside the Tardis. <laughs>
3: there we go, listeners. The perks of being a member of Parliament. <laughs> um, so. Like we said, we, you grew up in Cardiff. Was your upbringing political in any way?
0: Yeah, it was. Um, I think, you know, certainly you were against the backdrop of sort of Thatcher and the miners' strike and um, everything else that was going on in South Wales at the mm-hmm. time. And um, my dad was, was political, he was involved with the Labour Party. Um, I think actually the first time I remember going out, knocking doors, and delivering Leaffoots was in um, 1987. I was a seven year old. Okay. Um, but I, I definitely remember it very clearly. And, um, and then we had the Vale of Glamorgan by-election in, in 1989, um, which was a big uh, turnaround, uh, won that uh, with John Smith. Um, and I definitely remember the 92 election. Um, you know, we all thought Neil Kinnock was going to win. I remember going to the the big rallies, I was a big fan of Neil. You know, he's definitely an inspiration and somebody who actually I've got to know, um, you know, personally in, in later years. And, um, you know, it was a real shock when we didn't win um, that narrow victory for John Major back in 92.
3: So that seven years, was that your first political memory then going out?
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and a lot of sitting in back of meetings. My dad was a local councillor <laughs> okay. um, in the old county of South Glamorgan, and then in the Vale of Glamorgan. um, And so I was always kind of going out with him, sort of delivering leaflets or on surgeries or sitting in the yeah. back of council meetings. And, you know, I was usually reading a book or listening to some yeah. music or something, but usually picking up what was going on.
3: So what was it that got you into politics, that got you hooked on it in that way? Because obviously, you know, you know, lots of people grow up with this around them, Mm -hmm. you know, you live in a labor household, but usually there's something that happens as you kind of come of age. That makes you realise that, you know, you're stuck on this now and, you know, you're just going to have to live that it was life a, of politics.
0: It was a couple of things. I think I was very interested in certain causes which have remained close to my heart today. I mean, I was big on animal rights Um my first ever political letter. I wrote about fox hunting. Wow. Um, I remember writing to Barbara Castle, actually, and her writing back to me personally, which... Have you still a, got the letter? i still got the letter, yeah. No, it was amazing. And I met her years later, actually, before she passed away and um, reminded her of it and she thought that was uh, really lovely. Um, and also also on things like um, climate change and the environment, I was always um, sort of pretty sort of active with different groups locally, and um, remember sort of being concerned about acid rain and um, emissions and things like yeah. this. And I was probably a bit geeky to be honest, yeah. but <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, I was I was always involved with something. Um, but then I think probably it was sort of in my sort of later teens, I was involved with different sort of campaigns at school, and um, one of my teachers actually um, said to me, "Oh, you know, I know you like." Science, I know you like this, that, and the other, but you know you really ought to think about you know going into mm-hmm. politics and studying politics and humanities, and you know here I am yeah. today.
3: I mean, it sounds like you were active on a lot of different causes, which speaks to a kind of youthful optimism that mm-hmm. lots of teenagers have who become interested in politics. What would that teenage self think of the way politics is today? <laughs> Do you, um, would you would you feel? I mean, because I think it's hard to remove yourself. Would you kind of feel left, let down by what's happened?
0: Um, I think. Um, well. On, on the one front, I'd be really pleased about where there's been some progress in some areas. I mean, actually, um, I remember very clearly writing something about um, AIDS and HIV when I was younger, and um, how, you know, I kind of wished that it would be, you know, uh, uh, cured or um, controlled in some way. And, you know, I think we were against the backdrop of the sort of big AIDS posters of the 1980s. Um, and now I chair the all-party group on HIV and AIDS. And, you know, there's been such remarkable um, progress. I mean, still a very long way to go. But in terms of it being a death sentence for people, it's not now people can live a full and healthy and fulfilling life um, with HIV and that's been a remarkable turnaround. So I've always believed in the ability of politics to make a difference Um, but I think um, I would be saddened probably by how little has changed on some issues um, particularly um, environmental issues actually Um, and also you know I go up against the background of Labour being out of government and seemingly never able to be back in government and obviously you know we're in a very difficult and volatile situation at the moment.
3: And you weren't afraid to get involved when you were younger? um and then obviously at some stage you made the decision to get involved at the biggest level why did you decide to run for Parliament?
0: Um, I think it was because I'd worked a lot. Um, my career before politics was in the humanitarian sector. I'd worked for organisations like World Vision and Oxfam. I'd been involved with the Make Party History campaign in 2005. Um, and I'd spent a period working in government, actually, as an advisor to Douglas Alexander, who was Labour's international development secretary in the last government. And, um, you know, you, you can be involved sort of campaigning from the outside, mm-hmm. you can be involved as an advisor in government. But in the end, you know, there were people around me who said, you know, actually, The only way to sort of fundamentally sort of make a difference if you're that keen is to sort of go into it yourself. There's loads of pros and cons to that. Mm. Um, And actually, you know, if I wasn't an MP, I'd be probably back out there campaigning. But, you know, it it, it was definitely a, a sort of a seminal moment. What have you learned about change making from being on both
3: sides of that fence, being on the campaign side and being, you know, right in the depths of the legislation?
0: Um, I don't think it's uh, and my views have actually changed that much. I think there's always been a thing about having the right idea, having the right um, sort of analysis. You've got to have good, a good, a good idea, a good analysis, and a good objective. Secondly, it's about timing, um, um, and a lot of people sort of forget that actually. But you know, you have to pick your moments in mm-hmm. politics, and you also, you know, it's, it's all very well having the most wonderful campaign, and there not being any legislation to influence, or vice versa, not being ready for when there is an opportunity. Um, And then I think the third thing I've always learned is the ability, you know, the importance of working in coalitions, working with other people who share your view, maybe even not from your own party. Mm. But, um, you know, you need to build coalitions both outside politics and within it, because particularly in the environment we face today, where people are kind of all over the place in their political views, that's the only real way to get things done.
3: Well, speaking of people who aren't in our party, the Tory leadership race Mm -hmm. has been kind of trundling on. What do you think we've learned from the last few weeks?
0: um i don't think anything particularly new uh, it's just really confirmed my views of the two candidates and the mess that the conservative party is in and the real risk to the country and indeed more broadly than that um you know turning to boris first i mean You know, I mean, the guy is utterly unfit for uh, the office of prime minister. He wasn't fit to be foreign secretary. Um, You know, this is someone who is entirely about themselves, is willing to say and do anything um, to grasp power um, and who has a very uh, hazy relationship with uh, um, the truth and, 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 and other matters. And, You know, know, I'm not interested really what goes on in his personal life, but certainly his kind of public, Mm. um, you know, racist, uh, uh, misogynistic, uh, homophobic comments that he's made in the past. Now, whether or not he really believes those, the fact Mm. is he's said them. um, And, you know, I fear that we're moving towards sort of Trump type of politics. And, you know, he's taking advice from some of those sources. And Jeremy Hunt, you know, I, I think he's a far more competent individual. I don't agree with his politics. Yeah. I don't agree with his views on a whole series of issues. And obviously you only have to look at his handling of the NHS to see what yeah. a mess he made. However, um, you know, he is just having to tack further and further to the right to try to appease the, the Conservative base. And that is not a good thing for our country.
3: Well, you mentioned Trump. I mean, have you been surprised by how far the Conservative Party has been willing to move to
0: the right? No, not at all. I mean, I think it's in in the DNA, certainly, of some of the individuals, um, and certainly some of the individuals on the hard right of the Conservatives. You know, when you see a survey of Tory members saying that, um, you know, they're willing to sacrifice the union, um, do serious damage to the economy and jobs and, um, you know, sacrifice all sorts of other things just for the obsession around Brexit. I, I find that extraordinary. Um, but you know, again, it's in their, in, in their DNA. Um, so, you know, it is deeply worrying. Interestingly though, there are many, many conservatives I know for a fact who are deeply uncomfortable with where things are heading. Yeah. But my challenge to them is, you know, what are you going to do about it? Um, are you just going to sit back there and accept this, or are you going to fight back?
3: One of the things that seems to be most under strain at the moment is public trust in politicians. Mm-hmm. And obviously during the Brexit vote, there was a 350 million a week for the NHS and these spending pledges that will inevitably fall flat because they're you know, not based in fact. Mm-hmm. Today, we've seen Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson making all kinds of spending pledges about public services. Is there a danger that the British public is about to you know, Brexit is only the start of it, that the British public is about to get lied to again and we could end up in an even darker place as a result of this contest.
0: Well, I would take us back to a slogan that was used in 1996, 97, same old Tories, same old lies. Yeah. And unfortunately, again, they, they have a very hazy relationship with the truth when it comes to um, uh, particularly public spending pledges and otherwise. And, um, you know, when we look at the challenges that we see, whether it's in our NHS, our schools, our, um, our policing at the moment, a particular um, passion of mine, um, I simply don't believe anything I'm hearing from from them, and unfortunately, that does feed into that wider distrust and 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 sort of dissatisfaction with with politics and politicians. Um, and I do worry about where that's taking us. People want authenticity; they want honest, honesty, even if it's answers that they don't particularly like. I find most people, um, if you're straight with them, yeah. they will um, they will at least accept it, even if they don't particularly like it. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's talk about Brexit because
3: we can only survive for so long without talking about Brexit. Let's get orientated. Where do we sit right now in terms of the Brexit timeline and Labour's position?
0: Um, Well, I think overall, in terms of the timeline, um, I mean, I think we face some very straightforward choices. Mm. I mean, the first is, um, are we going to allow um, Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt or indeed by accident us to crash out with a catastrophic no deal? Parliament's very clear that it won't let us do that. that. Um, you know, but we have to find the devices and the routes in which to do that and that's gonna require again a, a cross party effort to um speak against that. And Labour's very clear on opposing a no deal, so I hope all Labour MPs will be voting in that way. Um, On the question, I think more fundamentally, of accepting a hard Brexit deal, which, let's be frank, you know, Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt will probably do a harder deal than Theresa May, um, or at least to try to. Um, You know, I think, again, um, MPs across the House have to take a very long, hard look at that. Um, You know, we already know the damage that Theresa May's deal would have done to the economy and to jobs and prospects. The fact is that anything under Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt is going to be even worse. So I think colleagues, particularly Labour colleagues, contemplating voting for that need to um, look at that very, very carefully. Because when you see the job losses at Ford, when you see Nissan, Honda, um, you know, these are just the canaries in the coal mines of of so many communities who are going to be damaged by um, a hard Brexit. And I'm a Labour MP and I'm not going to vote to make my Mm. constituents poorer.
3: A lot of these industries in Wales as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we've already been through that deindustrialization and the horror that causes for generations from the 1980s, from mm-hmm. Thatcher. You know, I, I'm not going to put the, you know, the high-tech aerospace jobs in South Wales in particular mm-hmm. at risk by um, supporting something that I think is completely bonkers. Um, and when the sort of objective analysis shows that it will be damaging. Um, but where does that leave Labour? Well, you know, we've got a clear position now, a very clear position from our Welsh Labour leader, Mark mm-hmm. Drakeford, um, you know, a little bit later than I would have liked. But, um, <laughs> but the reality is is that you know, he's recognised now we face a very different circumstance mm-hmm. and we face this new hard right Prime Minister and therefore Labour needs to get squarely and firmly behind putting this issue back to the people letting them have the final say um, I want to see that level of clarity from the UK leadership as well. Does that mean being
3: the party of Remain as well?
0: Um, I would like it if that was the case. I think if we're not, I think we will um, uh, suffer significantly in terms of losses to other parties. You know, we were losing votes four to one to uh, Remain-oriented uh, parties. You know, In my own city of Cardiff, you know, where we hold all four MP seats, all four Assembly seats and the Council, we came fourth. Yeah. And that was because there wasn't that clarity of position from our leadership nationally.
3: Wales, since it's had the Welsh Assembly, has always been a Labour country. But as we saw in the Brexit referendum, there were large pockets of dissatisfaction mm-hmm. that decided they voted to leave. I'll never forget driving up through towards Merthyr Tydfil and on those roundabouts there, seeing a big UKIP poster up on the railings. And as you drive around the roundabout, you can it says that this community project has been sponsored by the European Commission. And that's literally on the same roundabout. Mm-hmm. How does labor tackle this crisis of identity that's experienced in areas that traditionally supported it without abandoning our values?
0: Well, I think one of the things that frustrates me the most is when there are some who claim that all those sporting a second referendum or opposing Brexit are somehow sort of betraying the working class yeah. or not listening to working class voters. I mean, I come from a complete working class background. My own constituency had substantial areas that voted to leave. And indeed, as you say, you only have to go a few miles up the valleys. I used to work in Merthyr. I used to work in Torvine, two very uh, leave voting areas. But things have changed. And actually, I think, partly as people have realised the you know devastating effects. They've seen the chaos of the last three years and they've seen that this fundamentally is an agenda led by the Tories and by the right wing um, in British politics. Mm. Um, they're at the very least questioning it, in some cases turning completely against it. Um, and I think we have to recognise that views have changed since uh, 2016. We have to look at what the will of the people is today. But I think for those on the Remain side um, who think that we can somehow kind of um, just tell people they were wrong or, um, you know, sp- speak down to people, that's completely wrong you know my my friends family neighbors relatives you know voted leave um i know many many close close friends who voted leave and they did so for very genuine reasons um i feel that some of those were led by um very very misleading information like that you know, figure on the side of the bus. Um, But a lot of it was frustration. A lot of people have told me they wanted to give David Cameron a bloody nose. Um, They were fed up with what the Tories were doing. It was an anti-establishment vote rather than one specifically about the European Mm. Union. And I think, um, you know, we have to be listening to the concerns of those communities, whether it's on their fears about uh, migration, their concerns about job prospects in the future, um, whether it's that kind of sense of being let down and betrayed by the establishment more generally. Um, And we can only do that by engaging and having those conversations. Interestingly, I found with many people who voted leave in my own constituency, um, when it came around to the 2017 election, they were far more interested in talking about the NHS, yeah. about pensions, about the dementia tax the Tories were proposing, um, rather than the intricacies of the European Court of Justice or the Customs yeah. Union. In fact, I can safely say I've never had those issues raised <laughs> on the door with me. Um,
3: you mentioned lots of different policy issues there. And I just want to come on to another one, another policy issue that you've. Um, advocated on in the past which is big tech mm-hmm. and regulation of mm-hmm. big tech mm-hmm. um i'm interested to hear what that experience has been like because obviously governments all across the world are trying to grapple with this problem you know where do we sit now should we be worried where we are in terms of our democracy and our data and what's being done in that building over there mm-hmm. to kind of get a hold of it
0: um we absolutely should be worried um you look you know big technology, big data and you know everything from social media to the internet of things you know are amazing transformative technologies that can make our world better and you know you only have to look at the way um information is being able to be shared from um you know crises and conflicts around the world um and expose atrocities and 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 other things going on to show it at its best. But at its worst, it's technology that could be manipulated. Whether that is by um, outside forces, other states with a hostile agenda, you only have to think of one very large country to mm. the east of Europe <laughs> um, to look at that. Um, but also by um, you know regressive forces in our in our politics and um, the amount of content um, which is fake um, that is uh, manipulated, um, the extent to which you know that happened during the referendum, but also during other campaigns, is deeply worrying. And at the extreme end, this can generate very real world effects. Um, you know, a lot of dark money being Pl- Ploughed into um, uh, pro-Brexit advertising in marginal labour seats at the moment, particularly targeting, I would say, um, MPs in in the north of England. Um, and unfortunately that then generates organic content um, mm. threats um, and very real sort of public threats. And, when, you know, we're obviously, you know, we're just over three years on from the murder of our good friend Joe Cox. And we've seen the threats against Rosie Cooper. I've seen these things, um, you know, sort of really in my own constituency, and it's deeply concerning. The tech companies really are denying all responsibility. I mean, I've met on a regular basis with Facebook, with Twitter, with um, YouTube, um, and with some of the others I've also raised concerns about. Um, And they seem to think that, well, as long as they've got an identifiable individual, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, they're technically compliant with the law, the rest of it's not up to them. I think they've got to be a lot better than that um, and you know particularly given the hold they have over our lives um, this is uh, something I think Parliament is going to take a great degree of interest in. We have the new online harms uh, white paper coming out soon and I've argued for a more German style model of uh, you know a takedown law particularly for the mm. extremist content that's found. Mm. I mean I've been shocked every single time we've had these companies in front of us I've been able to find um, extremist content not just extreme but from prescribed organisations yeah. and I think that's deeply concerning.
3: You're talking about a lot of regressive forces in our politics at the moment, and I want to talk about, because we've got London Pride coming up this mm-hmm. Saturday, and you've been a really strong advocate for mm-hmm. LGBT mm-hmm. plus rights um, in Parliament. Are we at a point now where all the progress that you know we celebrated Stonewall, the 50th anniversary mm-hmm. of the rights at the Stonewall Inn, Are we at risk of all the progress that's been fought so hard for turning back? And regressing, does it feel like that it's actually not inevitable anymore?
0: I don't want to be bleak, but um, I do see some worrying signs of that. Um, And you only have to look at the 1930s. You only have to look at um, other periods in history where um, everything was assumed it was fine. Um, that rights had been secured Mm. that progress was being made and then within a matter of years things had descended not only into regression but into all out conflict and millions of lives being lost and um, you know there is that element of human nature and human history Mm. which um, I think we would all do well to learn lessons from and I've I've spent some time looking back at um, writings from that period um, to try and see what the parallels were and some of it isn't paralleled at all Mm. but uh, some of it significantly is and it is always the case that when you you know, you get the warning signs of, you know, whether it's anti-Semitism, homophobia, attacks on other minorities, Islamophobia, um, you know, demonising of others. That's, a, again, a bit of a canary in the coal mine um, for wider forces. And you know, let's be clear, Brexit is just a symptom of a wider agenda from, um, particularly from the, the far right, um, but also from elements of the far left, mm. um, where they would like to take us away from sort of liberal with a small L uh, democratic systems. You only have to look at what Putin said um, this weekend at the G20, and he's a attack on uh liberalism Mm. um and then look at the way he's running his own country um and unfortunately that that is very attractive to certain elements in our own societies um now social media technology um all of these things also give us the sort of the 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 armory to fight back on that in a way that possibly wasn't possible in the future But it only works if people stand up up and speak out and, and, you know, whether it's taking part in Pride, whether it's um, speaking out in Parliament, whether it's taking on individuals, whether it's drawing a line in the sand and saying, do you know what, actually, I'm not going to tolerate this. Um, Then, you know, that we're going to hold back some of those forces. So let's end on a bit of a higher note because I Mm -hmm. realise I've taken
3: us into a pretty bleak place there. Um, First of all, what's a good piece of advice that you've been given that has stayed with you throughout your time in politics?
0: Probably actually one of the first pieces of advice I was given in Parliament was attend a lot and listen a lot and don't just speak first. Um... I think there's a lot of politicians who kind of jump in straight away and you see this in conversations around tables in this place or in the chamber itself and actually you know the whole point about this is about listening to and understanding other arguments either to disagree with yeah. them or to agree with them or to try and find common ground and um there's too many people in here and in politics in general who want to broadcast and not engage um i guess and, twitter's uh, another example yeah is right, another yeah. example of that and you know it's probably led us all into some pretty bad habits but um but yeah listening to others understanding where they come from because Because actually, you know, that's the only way you can find out what more we have in common or where there's possibility for compromise. Mm. Um, And in polarised politics, like we see, I think that's very good lesson.
3: And in that polarised politics, how do you stay hopeful and optimistic?
0: Um, I think it's because you see... Um despite, you know, sort of my bleaker days, um, some amazing individuals who are making an amazing difference. Um, I'm often um really sort of um much more optimistic when I return from my constituency because despite what's going on in Westminster or what's yeah. going on nationally or internationally, you know, I see amazing people and amazing yeah. organizations making a difference for others around them. And um I visited on a bunch of projects this weekend, um involving the homeless, involving the Salvation Army, um uh the work of some of my local boxing clubs to yeah. um help young people keep them away from knife crime and violence, you know, and there's that sort of inspiration, you know, there's a lot of good people out there doing a lot of good things.
3: And just to finish off, if you could pass one policy, if you were a dictator for one day, you're not allowed to say re-establish democracy. <laughs> um, if you're a dictator for one day. What would be the one policy that you would pass?
0: Um, it probably would be something at the moment on climate change. Um, I mean, I think we just need a whole-scale um, decarbonisation of our economy because otherwise, we're going to hit a tipping point from which there won't be a coming back from, and we will have to cope with very, very serious implications of you know global change, which will drive other very dangerous forces. So, um, I think a, a pretty radical overhaul of the way we run our economies and societies.
3: I mean, that's what keeps me hopeful, hearing MPs say that's the one policy that they would uh, put forward on day one of their dictatorship. But, um, Stephen, thank you so much for chatting to Pleasure. us. Brilliant.
2: Thank you for listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. Uh, thank you, Stefan, and thank you to Stephen Doughty. Say bye, Stefan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. We'll all appreciate it. And I'm sure Cardiff City wants some more supporters.
3: Or should I say, Heilfaur.
2: <laughs> oh, God. All right. See you on Friday. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?